Chapter Thirty One of the Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty One. Such things happen every year in the north of Norway, and for a day or two afterward, the men talked about it, and then they go out on the same sea and begin fishing again. The shop was full of men, all talking at once. Some of them had been on their way landward when the storm broke, and had got in safely. Others had been brought in by the lifeboat, but some had only just come in, after having been out in the storm all night. One small fair man in a yellow southwester was talking louder than all the others, and people were looking at him in surprise. Quite by chance he had been on shore the day before, and the boat he belonged to had gone down with all hands on board. It was evident that it had been so ordained, and that he was not meant to be with them that day. God's ways were wonderful. It was calm today, but cold. Men were standing out on the islands watching for the boats that had not yet come in. The chief inspector had sent steamers out to look for any that had capsized. A great number of boats from fishing stations many miles away had come in during the night, and they were now setting sail for their own stations in good weather. Later in the day, a steamer had come across a strange boat in the middle of the West Fjord. It was a Nordland boat, and her sail was close-reefed, although there was little wind. The steamer hove to, and found that the headman at the helm was half-dead, and that the other three men who were sitting and holding on to the thwart were frozen to death. Spray had turned to ice in their hair and beards and upon their clothes, and they were staring straight before them with wide-open glassy eyes. Peter Susanza that night had come safely into Hamarøy, and it was with a heavy heart that he now sailed back across the West Fjord. He did not know how many men he knew might have been drowned, and he could not bear to think of Kristaver Myran and his men. It was evening when he reached the station with its harbour lights, and he could see the hut, their Lofoten home, and thought how there would be plenty of room there now. As he tramped up the slippery wharf steps, he saw people near, but did not dare to ask any questions. The coming in of every boat that day was an event, and Peter, too, was soon surrounded by an inquisitive crowd, but he spoke to no one, and went straight to the hut. When he opened the door, he paused. Was he dreaming? There were men lying asleep in the bunks. He stared in astonishment, and then turned to the men following him. Great God! was all he said. Dripping clothes were hanging round the stove, and sea-boots lay upon the floor in pools of water. The men came in and stood gazing at the sleepers. They had themselves been within an ace of going down, and they were drenched to the skin and thoroughly worn out, but all that was nothing compared with the fact that the crew of the seal were lying in their bunks asleep. They did not count them and in a little while Peter told one of his men to make haste and change, and then make some hot food ready. It was hardly likely that they had had anything to eat, those men in the bunks. While they were busy taking off their clothes and emptying the water out of their sea-boots, Kristaver woke, 
and raising himself on his elbow rubbed his eyes. Perhaps he was confused with some dream, but then he caught sight of Peter, who the night before had sailed past and left him clinging to his wrecked boat, and for a brief moment the two headmen looked at one another. Then Christaver yawned and passed his hand across his forehead. "'Have you got back?' he asked, in a matter-of-fact tone of voice. It was a little while before Peter answered. "'Yes,' he said. "'And you, you've got back too, I see.' "'We came in a little while ago,' said Christaver, rubbing his eyes. Peter busied himself with changing into dry clothes. He dared not ask how the others had been saved. Suddenly Christaver swung his feet over the edge of the bunk, and when he had found his wooden shoes, clamped over to the stove, and taking down a homespun coat from a peg, pulled a big pocket-book out of an inside pocket. "'Bet you anything my money's all gone to pap,' he said. "'Money? Yes, I expect it is.' The hands of all involuntarily sought their breast pockets. It is wonderful how dry a leather pocket-book can keep inside when it is tied up with a strong cord, but it was another matter with the men of the seal who had had the waves washing right over them last night. Christaver went to the table and lighted the lamp. It was customary for the headman to keep the earnings of the whole boat until the fishing ended. There were thousands of kroner this time, and now perhaps all the notes were ruined. Beads of perspiration stood on his forehead, and his fingers trembled as he unfastened the wet book. The others sat looking on, and felt it was best not to speak to him. Inside, too, the book was black with the wet, and there were the notes. They had been red and blue, now they were all stuck together in a sodden mass. "'Oh!' murmured the others. A headman does not generally exhibit his pocket-book, and even when two crews occupy the same hut, the one does not know exactly what the other has made. And Christaver now frowned because the others sat looking on. "'Try and dry them first, said Peter Jusonsa. But Christaver did not hear him and began separating the notes. It was almost like saving lives.' Some of them tore, and it hurt him as much as if his own flesh was being torn. This money was what he and his men had to live on, and with which to keep their homes together. It is one thing to lose nets and boat, and to know that banks and tradesmen demand payment all the same, but if the banknotes are ruined, his home will be sold by auction, and he and his will no longer have a roof over their heads." the table began to be covered with little piles of sodden paper. "'We must dry them,' said Peter Jusonsa, wading barefooted to the stove, which he replenished, and removing the clothes. "'The clothes can dry another time,' he said, "'but the money is the first thing to be thought of now.' And he began to fasten up lines of string round the stove to hang the notes upon. Christaver sat staring at these scraps of paper. His hand lay upon the table, and he felt inclined to sweep them all together and throw them away. "'Come on,' said Peter, and the others began to help. The notes were carefully hung upon the lines, either singly or sticking together, 
and looked like tiny doll's clothes hung out to dry. Christaver stood looking on, and suddenly broke into a strange laugh, and began to talk about there being many kinds of drying. There was hay-drying, and clothes-drying, and sheep-drying, but now there was money-drying. He hung over them, watching them carefully, putting more wood into the stove, and turning the wetter side of the notes toward the heat. His face screwed up all the time from sheer anxiety, as if he were tending little children. The notes became dry. He had saved them. They crackled when he folded them, but that did not make them any less serviceable for the payment of debts. When supper was ready, the sleepers were roused. But when all were seated around the table, it struck Peter Susansa that one of their company was missing. He looked at the others, but could not bring himself to ask. The crew of the seal looked as if they had a common misfortune, and Christaver scarcely lifted his eyes from his plate. They all ate plentifully of the fresh fish, their one thought being to go to bed and sleep. It was only when they had almost finished that one of Peter's men exclaimed, "'But what's become of Cornelis Gumon?' Everyone looked up, but no one spoke. At last Christaver answered, Cornelis? Yes, he said. He, he didn't come back with us. No. There was silence in the hut. The men looked at one another, but not a word was spoken. No one asked anything more, and no one cared to rise. The meal was over, and all heads were bowed, and hands were folded under the table. In a general way few ever thought of saying grace, but now they sat for some time thus, looking down. Cornelis Gumon, that merry fellow! Could he be lying in the West Fjord now? When at last they raised their heads, they still sat looking straight before them. At last Henry Robben spoke. It won't be easy for his father, he said. And there was a low murmur of sympathy from the others. The very next day the fishing fleet sailed out to the banks again, but here and there a man was left standing on the shore, looking at the others as they sailed away, but with no longer a boat of his own. Christaver was one of these, and he and his men wandered about the islands in their Sunday clothes, with nothing in the world to do. They might as well make up their minds to take the steamer south and go home. There was no use in putting it off for there was nothing more for them to do here this year. There were still some boats that had not returned after the storm, and men were standing about, gazing out to sea, on the lookout for them. In the afternoon Christaver decided to row over to his friend, Edwin Hansen from Varanger. When anything troubled him it always did him good to have a walk and a chat with a merry Nordlander. On his way, however, he heard news that affected him deeply. Edwin Hansen, with boat and crew, had gone down in the storm. His boat had been seen to fill and sink. For the rest of the day Christaver walked about by himself, and in the hut in the evening he did not utter a word. He seemed to see Edwin's red, beardless face and beautiful smile, and to hear him talking of the three families he had to keep. 
"'It's strange about a brother,' he had said. "'It's easier for the one that's alive to look after the widow than for the one that's dead. And some of the children have to lie under the kitchen dresser, but except for that it's all plain sailing.' It was the greatest sorrow Christophe had ever had. He began to wander about the islands as if in search of his friend. He rode across to other islands and talked to people and tried to joke, but it was all nonsense. He went out to jutting points of land in order to be alone, and would sit chewing a quid and gazing at the sea and the gulls. And now he began to feel Cornelis haunting him and saying, "'You let go of me, Christopher.' You were the headman, but at the last moment you saved yourself and let go of me. Edwin Hansen would have said, Yes, but Christopher only let go of you when Jakob sailed right over the keel, and there was nothing else to be done. Christopher did all that could be done. If it had been his son Lars, says Cornelis, with a laugh. Christopher got up, shook himself, and set off walking. Where should he go? If he could have gone to Edwin now, that man would have managed to get rid of Cornelis and put him, Christopher, in his right mind again. It did not matter now where he went. Cornelis went with him. They were having supper in the hut when Jakob came limping in. He first said, May your food be blessed, and the others asked him to sit down and share it with them. Then he talked about the price to be got for fish and about all kinds of things, and at last he remarked that it was wonderful how lucky some people were. Like Christopher there, for instance, he added. Like me, yes, said Christopher, with a sullen glance at him. Like you, yes. Do you know that your boat's been found by a steamer? There was a general movement of surprise, and they all turned toward the speaker. Christopher forgot the food in his mouth, and sat staring at Jakob. "'I suppose that's a joke,' he said at last. "'No, damn it all! If your boat isn't lying in the channel here, I've seen her myself. It was a salt steamer from Christiansund that fished her up, and as her number was still hanging on, it was easy enough to know where she was from. Oh, yes, you're a lucky one, you are.' "'You must have a dram for that piece of news.' said Peter Shusansa. It eased his mind, too, for he had felt as if he could not look Christopher in the face. He had not yet brought himself to the point of asking who his rescuer had been, but he knew from other sources that it was Jakob. Damn it all with a limp was not the man, however, to go about boasting of what he had done. It was an easy matter for Christopher to prove that the boat that had been found was his, and before long he was standing looking at the seal as she lay there, bare of all her rigging and white with frost and frozen spray. It was like meeting again with an old friend. A few days later he went to the shop and bought a mast and a sail, ropes and nets. His pocket-book became thinner. The notes crackled when he unfolded them and paid with them, but the man behind the counter found them quite satisfactory. When Christopher raised the new mast in the seal, he placed it four inches farther aft than it had been before, and put a block of wood between it and the knee-piece. 
for at the moment the boat capsized the conviction had shot like lightning through his mind that it was there the fault lay the want of unity between the rigging and the boat arose from the fact that the mast was too far forward this was why the seal was capricious this was why she had capsized three times before but now he would show that as he had up to the present been able to make her go so he would be able to make her stand up end of chapter thirty one